That's Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Times headline on Wednesday last week provides the ideal setting for our new series that's going to run from now until half term in the middle of October. It's hardly news, but the editors announced that Britain is no longer a Christian nation now, say the clergy. And and the article produced a flurry of further pieces. Rod Liddell in The Spectator, I think one of the most penetrating and acerbic. He blames infantilizing messages and mission statements from church leaders that have jettisoned Christianity and replaced it with liberal grandstanding. He tells of attending a church where a preacher blew up an inflatable globe and the congregation were to sort of punch it around the church to illustrate air miles or some such thing. The Independent carried an article featuring featuring two young members of our Sunday evening congregation. Imagine my surprise when on the newsfeed there was the face of one of the young girls who come here on a Sunday evening. And then Charles Fraser, who's a vicar down in South London, wrote a very excellent piece focusing on the reason for failure of the Church of England in particular. Listen to what he said. They seek a very secular model of success, borrowing their thinking from management consultants who are trying to revive ailing companies like Wilco and Pizza Hut. The leadership focuses on what the customer wants, sets sales targets, closes down underutilized outlets, and re-energizes the sales team for greater and greater frenetic activity. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on the mission of Jesus. What is it that he thinks is going to drive Christianity into a pagan nation? And I've called it a commission to die for, because by the end of Matthew chapter 10, that is precisely what the Lord Jesus is asking us to be prepared to do. We're in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and teaching, and Matthew was one of the 12 closest disciples of Jesus commissioned by him to teach us. And from chapter 9, verse 35, these really very famous verses, he provides for us the missional instruction to his disciples as he sends them into rebellious Israel. It seems to me a great place for us at the start of a new term, a great place as many either start for a first time or start back in the city a great place to be at the start of the final quarter of 2023. Yes, the original commission of these 12 apostles was to Israel, granted. But by the end of the gospel, Jesus sends these apostles together with all who acknowledge the name of Jesus out into the whole world. And so chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel is, if you like, something of a prototype 
of the mission that will become the mission of the whole church. That's where we're going to be, and that's what we're going to be learning. Today couldn't be a better place for us to start. What is the mission of Jesus? What drives it? How is it carried forward? What does he expect his workers to be doing? So the mission of Jesus is grounded in his authority as king. The mission of Jesus is driven forward by his compassion as shepherd. The mission of Jesus is advanced by answer to prayer. So his mission as king. Verse 35 is absolutely key. I'd like you to look down at it. You may feel you know it off by heart, but even so, I want us to look at it again. As Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is an objective thing. It is the gospel. Gospel simply means announcement, declaration. It is a demonstrable thing and a proven thing. It is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he's speaking about the reality of the kingdom of heaven, which he has displayed through his life and teaching that can be read about, studied, explored in his public ministry that he exercised when he broke into Galilee in the first century. One writer has described his coming as as like a thunderbolt bringing the kingdom of heaven into a particular place in time and history. And it's what the Gospel of Matthew, this booklet that you've got in your hand, has been all about from the very opening page. We've had the Gospel of the Kingdom taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've had the Gospel of the Kingdom revealed in the action of Jesus Christ in chapters 8 and 9, just immediately preceding uh, this verse 35. And in the remainder of this verse, by way of summary, what Jesus does is to repeat, or Matthew does, is to tell us what Jesus had been doing in chapters 8 and 9. So he went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Notice the all and notice the every. I like to say that there was a time in Galilee when the waiting lists were reduced to zero, the NHS budget was nil, there was no sound of a siren, no dementia ward, no funeral director or memorial service. And this is the reality of the kingdom that Jesus showcases in his life and the kingdom that Jesus will usher in at the end of time. I like to suggest it's like a freight train that is coming towards us with its inexorable advance, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that there is beyond this broken world, a world where all disease, all affliction, everything that wrecks this world is removed once and for all time. And from the outset of the gospel, the very moment that Jesus breaks 
into this world. Chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of the kingdom, the objective reality. Of course, when Jesus was physically with us in the first century, the physical manifestation of his kingdom was on display. Now he has ascended to rule, we experience the spiritual reality of his kingdom, sins dealt with, the Holy Spirit dwelling within his people. And when he returns, it is this kingdom that he will come to bring. A friend of mine, John Chapman, used to say, if you want to know what heaven is like, look at the ministry of Jesus when he walked the earth. Beautiful. And of course, the advance of his kingdom is an announcement thing. The very word gospel means announcement, the good news of his kingdom. And in chapters 8 and 9, we have witnessed the good news of his kingdom. He cleansed the leper. He healed the centurion servant. He healed many. He calmed the storm. He liberated whole regions from Satan's oppression. He healed the paralytic. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He enabled the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It was glorious. Here, if you like, is the product that we are here to declare and to showcase to the lost world. This is what we're all about. That's what the Christian gospel is, the gospel of the kingdom of King Jesus and his rule. Charles Fraser, the church authority must stop being so pathetically needy and quit chasing around after congregations as if they, the congregations, justify what it is that what we do. We have something life-changing and wonderful to offer. More precious than gold, we have to stop selling it cheap. Well, that is what's on offer here on a Tuesday lunchtime, the gospel of the kingdom. That is what you're in your office to hold out to your colleagues, the gospel of the kingdom. That is what Jesus came to proclaim and to demonstrate, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what the Christian message is all about. And what individual is there here in the city who does not desperately need the gospel of the kingdom? Hidden need, tangible, visible need, physical need psychological need, financial need, emotional need, above all else, spiritual need. The need for sins forgiven, guilt erased, a readiness to meet my creator on judgment day that is coming towards the city like a freight train with its inexorable advance, coming towards you with its inexorable advance grounded in the authority of King Jesus, driven by the compassion of the good shepherd. Now, verse 36 is remarkable. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion is a magnificent word in the original language. I'm no scholar. I rather like dislike. I rather dislike quotations from the original language. It makes the preacher sound rather pompous. Uh, But I am told the Greeks. 
spoke about felt emotion, not by referring to the heart, but by referring to the gut. You felt things in your stomach. And the Greek textbook tells me that this word, felt compassion, is to be moved to one's inwards, to yearn with compassion. We say today, I was gutted. Well, you may not like that phrase, but actually it's very close to this original here. It's the kind of thing we might feel when we witness a small child wandering without parental help in a war zone or a family in the aftermath of an earthquake sitting in desperation. He felt compassion. And the language of harassed and helpless and of unprotected sheep is perfect, but not complementary. I don't know how much you know about sheep. They appear to be as capable of self-destruction as any animal in the world. They get stuck in bushes. They get lost. They get eaten by predators. They get sick. Those who farm sheep will tell you that they really are very, very stupid. And without supervision from outside, totally vulnerable at risk. So look again at the verse. When he saw the crowds, he was gutted for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, completely vulnerable, at risk, and open to any predator. Now, it's such an interesting description, isn't it? It tells us so much about Jesus, about his heart, his kindness, his non-judgmental grace. It tells us so much about ourselves. The liberal humanist assumes that without divine aid, we are free, enlightened, and enabled to pursue our true potential. Jesus tells us, that without divine direction and aid, we are profoundly at risk, in danger, and open to any passing predator. I think it's worth asking ourselves who we think is right. The word harassed has its root in a Greek word meaning to skin or to flay. The word helpless comes from the word meaning to cast or to throw. When Jesus saw the crowd, he had gut-wrenching compassion for them because they were being ripped to shreds and scattered abroad like a flock of sheep with no one to watch over and protect them. Now, I hope you'll forgive me giving an illustration from uh, my summer break, uh, but I think it helps us to see what happens when a culture abandons the teaching of the Good Shepherd. Uh, people of my generation, we grew up with the teaching of the Good Shepherd. Whether we liked it or not, it shaped the whole of the culture. I spent some time going to a church a couple of weeks uh, down in the West Country. It's on the edge of uh, a housing estate. Uh, and the guy there's a friend. Actually, one Sunday I looked up and there were like 15 members of the St. Helens congregation sitting there. I thought I was back home. It was really rather a shock. It was a shock to me. It was certainly a shock to them. <laughs> we had the senior pastor and his wife to lunch. She's just taken up a post teaching in the school. 
She says, three generations of the doctrine of free love have exercised freely on the estate. The children on the housing estate, many of them, three or four in a family, will have three or four different fathers, the same mother. The result is that people simply don't know who their father is or who the father of somebody else is. She's just started teaching. Part of the training to teach on a housing estate now involves incest training. She says the resultant mental problems through incest on that estate make the whole school feral. The doctrine of free love expounded by the liberal humanists, our leaders in the 60s and 70s, giving way to the reality of feral life. Who's right? Jesus or the liberal humanist? When Jesus looks out on the crowd, he was gutted on their behalf because they were harassed and helpless, completely vulnerable at risk, being ripped to shreds and scattered abroad like a flock of sheep with no one to watch over and protect them. But the image of sheep and of shepherd in the context of the Bible and for the original audience of Matthew would have had much, much greater significance. Uh, God's people are regularly described in the first part of the Bible as his flock. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We are your people, the sheep of your flock, Psalm 23, Psalm 100. Throughout the Old Testament, from the time of Joseph and of Moses, right the way through to the time of Ezekiel and the prophet Zechariah, the leaders of God's people are described as shepherds. So King David, he will shepherd my flock Israel. Two Chronicles, they were scattered on the mountain like sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel delivers a vicious assault by God on those who are supposed to be teaching the people of Israel. They're false shepherds. They feed themselves. They fleece the flock. So here is the Lord Jesus. He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Who does Jesus blame, actually, for the state of the flock, the leaders? You might say Jesus stood on London Bridge and he watched people flocking across from the southeast of England And as he saw the great crowds coming across, he had compassion on them. Oh yeah, 2.5 children, 2.5 cars in the forecourt, 2.5 bedrooms, 2.5 this, that and the other. But like sheep without a shepherd, desperately needy. What is the solution? Management training, rebranding, messy church, noisy church, Darth Vader church, chino-wearing church. Verse 37 and 38. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly 
to the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers into his harvest. Now, for many of us, this will be a very familiar verse. I wonder whether we act on it. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray earnestly. Well, the apples are very small in the orchards this year. Lack of rain in May and June. But extraordinarily, the plum trees are absolutely groaning. groaning. What do you do when you have a plum tree weighed down? The figs are abundant. What do you do? You need laborers. I mean, whether they come from Eastern Europe or wherever they come from, you need them to bring in the harvest. The word laborer is that of somebody stripped to the waist, sweat, pouring down, working hard. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. The word earnest speaks of serious engagement, zealous, passionate prayer. Pray earnestly. And the harvest is plentiful, he says. I I think we simply don't believe him. (laughs) Jesus would look at the gherkin with its 41 floors and he would say, I don't mind what you think, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus would look at the scalpel towering its way up to the sky. He said, I don't care what you think, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus would look at the streets of London. The harvest is plentiful. What's needed is laborers pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And the word is out, throw. Throw out, thrust out, drive out laborers into the harvest field. 1950, a man called John Stott went to be rector of All Souls Langham Place, a great church. He did an extraordinary work over many, many years. At his first annual church meeting, he had devised a strategy for reaching the local area. In 1998, when I started as rector here, the biography of John Stott, volume one, had just come out, and I spent the summer reading it. And in our first annual meeting, I quoted his words, which ran like this. The multitudes are outside. The task is beyond the power of the clergy. A staff of 10 curates couldn't do it. There are only two alternatives. Either the task will not be done, or we must do it together. A task force thoroughly trained as a team for outreach. The interesting thing here is the initial verses aren't about the training per se. The initial verses are about the authority, the compassion, and the Lord. And so it's a wonderful thing to be here at the beginning of a new year, for academic year, the last quarter of a financial year, I know. Wonderful thing to have numbers of people starting work here in the city. Many of us coming back, I say bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, perhaps, you know, resolute and determined for another, another three months or whatever it is. But what is the urgent need of the hour? It's earnest prayer.
And I wonder whether you might give yourself, we might give ourselves, this coming week, every morning, as we travel in, as we step onto the floor. What is it that this floor needs? It needs laborers, hard workers. As we pray that prayer, just beware, won't you? Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples. (laughs) You may find very quickly that we are answer to our own prayers. Let's pray together. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Thank you, our Father, so much that there is a gospel of your kingdom to proclaim that it's coming towards us, that Jesus has made it possible. We praise you, our Father, that you have given us good news for the city. Help us to believe your analysis of the city, we pray. Sheep without a shepherd. Help us to see it very clearly. Please fill us with your compassion. Grant us that sense of guttedness at the lost lives around us. We pray, our Father, earnestly that you would thrust out laborers. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.